This is uh, Paul Schneiderman today in the 132nd edition of Sports Untold Podcast, also on RainierAvenueRadio.world. My special guest today is Jeff Smolian, a legend in the media and business worlds. He's also known in Seattle for being the owner of the Seattle Mariners from 1989 through 92. Uh, I'll get back to you in a minute, Mr. Smolian. Uh, I have a new assistant and producer, Olivia Coyne. Olivia's doing a great job. She's a University of Washington student. Uh, my podcast is now on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbeam. You go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. You also go to my law office website, pluslawoffices.com. Uh, I encourage my listeners to click the like button, like button regarding my show, comment, and go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. You can watch some of my other, uh, other interviews. When we get back to you, Mr. Smoyan, Jeff Smoyan's been involved in the legal, political, media, entertainment, political business and pro sports worlds. Uh, he's lived a fascinating life, uh, a trained lawyer with a law degree from USC. Uh, Jeff has been the, uh, the director of the National Association of Broadcasters. He serves as the CEO and founder of MS Communications Corporation, a publicly traded company. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Jeff was a former owner of the Seattle Mariners. He's known as the founder of the 24-7 sports radio format. Um I didn't know this. Jeff was uh, appointed by President Clinton to serve an ambassador position at one time. Uh, he has a great new book out, which I look forward to reading. Uh, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down. Uh, Mr. Smolian, I appreciate you coming in the 132nd edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on RainierAvenueRadio.world. Paul, it's a pleasure. Call me Jeff. This is fun. Well, appreciate it. Appreciate it. You've always had that uh, that folksiness to you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, this may be the most important question you're going to get in, in an interview. Uh, I'm being a little facetious, but I want to start with this question. Did you invent the Mariner Moose? I did. I have, I will be honest. In, in the interest of full disclosure, um, I've always been a Bullwinkle fan. And the nice lady I was dating at the time, we went to a Bullwinkle retrospective at the U., uh, and it was like a couple hours of Bullwinkle cartoons, and we came back and laughed, and we were having a contest for the mascot. And I went to Stuart Lane, and I said, hey, do we have any moose? And they had a couple of moose, you know, entries, and we kind of laughed and said, well, you know, everything is seafaring, and everything else is, you know, and, and there was consensus, and moose would be fun. So as Steve Kelly once said, the only thing I ever did positive in Seattle was invent the mariner moose so i don't know if that's true or not but uh but we yeah i, I will take the credit or the blame for the moose i, I love it i have a cute i have a cute story for you so I, I have two little nieces well they're now they're one of them is college age and i uh said to my niece cassidy years ago when the moose came into where we were, where we were sitting once and cassidy was about nine or ten then i go cassidy do you enjoy talking to mariner moose she goes well uncle paul the mariner moose doesn't really talk that was her response so Absolutely but, right. It's, uh, yeah, it. it's funny, you know. I think when when they had Ken Griffey for president in like 1996 or something, there was a, a Nike campaign, and his running mate was the Mariner Moose. So, uh, yeah, so that was uh, a fun thing. Yeah, you got to get that more in your bio that you invented the Mariner Moose, a very very beloved mascot in Seattle. Uh, yeah. You know, I when I interview authors, when I hear authors interviewed, I always find you can learn so much by asking them about how they got the title of their book. How'd you come up with the title of your book as Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down? I wrote the book at the behest of my now college sophomore daughter, who I would drive to school every day for years. And we talk about all the lessons of life. And she said, all the stories are so crazy, Dad. You got to write these down. You got to write a book. So when COVID came, I started writing and I sent it off to a couple of friends and they said, you know, you really got a book here. 
Um, and when it came time to think of the title, I have a favorite saying that life is a roller coaster. Um, uh, you know, it's always ups and downs. Mine certainly has been that way. And when I thought about my life, it's been so crazy that a lot of the rides have been upside down. So that's how I came up with the title, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down. Well, it's a clever title, a very catchy one. And uh, and I encourage my listeners to, to read Jeff's new book, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down. Um, you know, I'm kind of curious because you're also known as, I guess, the father of a 24-7 sports radio format. Tell right. us kind of the brainstorming process and how you came up with that. Well, I have always kidded. I actually came up with the idea when I was not paying attention in a class at USC many, many, many years ago. And it was sort of in the back of my mind. And Emmis grew really by buying, in those days, FM radio stations and finding the right niche. And we were very fortunate. But we bought the Doubleday stations that came with an AM station, WHN in New York. Uh, and it was half country music and it had the Mets because the Doubleday family also owned the Mets. And I said, I'd really, I'd like to do my all sports idea here now because when you have 160 some baseball games a year, you got a lot of automatic tune. And I said, it's sort of like a shopping center. If you've got Nordstrom's or, you know, or Saks Fifth Avenue, you've got instant traffic generating. That's what baseball was to a radio station. And uh, I ran it by my managers. Everybody thought it was a really stupid idea. Um, we're a very collaborative group. So we had a vote. It got voted down. Um, and, uh, one of my best friends said, what do you want to do? I said, look, you can't lead where people won't follow. So we're not going to do it. And the next day, a couple of my senior managers came in and said, look, company's doing really great everywhere else. We still think it's a stupid idea, but we know you want to do it. So we're, we're going to go do it. And we put it on the air. It was a disaster for the first 18 months. Jim Lampley was our first, um, um, talk show host. He called it the Vietnam War of Emmis. Uh, it lost record amounts of money. i never forget the year later we bought the NBC stations. And in those days, you couldn't have two AMs or two FMs in a market. So we were going to switch from the 1050 frequency to 660, which is a better frequency. And we had a chance to inherit Don Imus. And at the time, Don had been in and out of rehab for three years. And I remember meeting with his agent and I said, let's see we've got a radio station that's losing record amounts of money. We've got a baseball team in the New York Mets who by that time in 1988 had all sorts of drug problems. And you've got Don Imus who's been in and out of rehab for four years. I said, putting all this together, what could possibly go wrong? Um, but it all worked. Don stayed you know, clean the rest of his life. The station took off and it became one of the biggest stations in America. One of the chapters, I have a favorite saying in life, the line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. And my chapter in the book, Idiot to Genius is WFAN, because I went from a moron to a genius when the thing worked. The next chapter is Genius to Idiot. And that was my days in Seattle, where when I came to Seattle, I was the boy wonder. Everybody wanted my autograph. Uh, we made a lot of inroads. People loved the stuff we did. And then when it didn't work and we couldn't afford it anymore, I became a bum. So that's life. I always say you're going to, you know, you're going to be a genius and an idiot at different times in your life. So shrug your shoulders and recognize that. I love your point about the margin of error between genius and idiot. Yeah, that, that's, that's very, the, very, very well fine. said. Jeff, what do you, you know? Just like personally, I, I still listen to radio when I'm driving my car and so forth, but I'm finding myself going to podcasts more to listen to yeah. sports yeah. shows and all sorts of other um, 
other radio type shows. What what do you see in the future for for radio and maybe specifically sports radio? Well, I think sports radio will do better than most things because it's local. Um, you know, if, if you can have podcasts, you can have you know cable TV, you can have all the alternatives. But you know, like I'm in Indianapolis now, and today I can tell you that if you turn on the sports radio station, you're going to hear about Jonathan Taylor's contract problems with the Colts and Anthony Richardson's ability to be ready to play quarterback. And that's and it's local. It's what people care about. But there's been no question there's been a dramatic decline in the radio business. Um, we made the decision a number of years ago to transition out of it. We have I only have two more stations left. Uh, we're fortunate. We paid off almost $2 billion of debt, and we have a clean balance sheet, and we're buying other businesses now. Um, but I love the radio business, but it has declined. There'll still always be a place for it, but there's no question, Paul, that there's it, it's been a gradual decline over many years. Fascinating to see what see what the future holds. You, you mentioned you mentioned two two things. I was going to hit on this interview. Why don't we just do it now? Uh, I know you're a USC law and undergraduate, um, yeah. Brad. Uh, what do you think of the Gen Cone hire? Well, in the interest of full disclosure, um, I've been a trustee at USC for many many years, and I was involved in that process. Um, the, the president of the university and the chairman of the board asked me to be involved. Uh, I'm very impressed with Gen Cone. Uh, I think she. I think it's a, an inspired choice. I'm happy uh, that Carol, our president, made the choice. I think she'll be terrific. I, I, I hate to say that to people in Washington because I think she did a great job there, and we're sort of stealing her away. But I think she. Uh, I think it's a very inspired choice. Very, I could not be happier. She's the new AD. She was a guest on my show at one time, and definitely an impressive woman. Um, you know, I know you've, you've had a long tie to Indianapolis. You, you still live in the Indianapolis suburbs. You're very much an Indiana guy. Have you ever yeah. been interested in bringing Major League Baseball to Indianapolis? Well, that was the rumor when we bought the Mariners. There was a secret master plan to to move it to Indianapolis. Um, and the answer, I was involved with a group that tried to bring it to Indianapolis in the mid-80s. And I looked at the map and said, this just doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work because... And I, I laughed because everybody in Seattle, when we first bought the team, thought he's going to move it to the, the the RCA Dome. And if you looked at the RCA Dome, it was built for football only. And we would have had a 140-foot porch in right field, uh, which probably would have been a little tough to play baseball. So, But I knew that it, 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 there was never a plan uh, to have baseball here. Years after I left Seattle, we had a chance to move uh, the Expos here. Um, and... I looked at it and thought seriously about it, but a friend of mine said, you know, you've had the worst economics in baseball in Seattle. This, these economics would be worse in Seattle because you've got cable TV markets, you know, Cincinnati's a hundred miles away. Chicago's 200 or 170 miles away. So you're into the Reds market and the, and the Cubs and the White Sox market and the Cardinals have always been dominant in Western Indiana. So the math, we are very fortunate we have the Colts and the Pacers. Um, and having baseball here, I've been asked this question a thousand times. And I said, it just, it's a non-starter. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I take questions from, from listeners for my show. And uh, a good friend of mine had a question for you. We can expand this question, but he's, he's really yeah. curious, my friend Dean, about what was it like being David Letterman's boss why don't you yes. expand that to uh, working with Ken Griffey Jr. and Don Imus, who you mentioned earlier? Well, you know, I, I've always said people are people. Um, David worked at the first station I ever ran. He was an investor in our company. 
Uh, David was absolutely brilliant. Um, the first station I ever ran, we did talk. And, and basically, talk radio is the province of, you know, 60 plus people. And David and I were 25-year-old guys. And so uh, we used to laugh. David would do things that 24-year-old guys would love. Uh, and, it, and it just did not resonate. My favorite story that I've told is one day I came back from lunch and a guy called me and said, look, you've got a problem. Letterman's a communist. And I said, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, I called him and I said, there are communists in Carmel, Indiana. Now, Carmel's the big suburb to the north of Indianapolis. And he said, there are communists in Carmel. And do you know what Letterman said? I said, no, I don't know what he said. He said, well, Letterman said, you got to give them Carmel. The football team's lousy. The traffic is terrible, and you can never find a good parking space. So give them Carmel and hold the line at the next supper. And that was the kind of stuff they did. David did. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the monument. My office is right in the circle. And one day, David said, we've sold the monument to Guam for a 300-foot celery stalk. Uh, and people are saying, you can't sell the monument. It's right in the middle of town. I'm sitting there looking at it right now. And you can't do that. And David said, look, we need more greenery downtown. 300 feet of celery stock will make downtown much nicer. So David does this stuff like that all the time. And he was brilliant. Uh, when he went to California, we still paid him for a while. He said, I'm going to take this job for a year, and then I'm going to see if I can make it in California. Um, brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, and Junior was the best part of baseball. I love Junior. Uh, I've always thought that if Junior would stay healthy, uh, that he would have been the greatest player who ever lived. It's funny, I kept very few baseball, very few um, items of, you know, from baseball. I kept the autograph, the, the, the lineup card that Kenny and, and his dad signed on the first night that they played together. Um, excuse me, that was always something that, and I've also on my desk got a picture of Willie Mays, who was my idol as a kid, and Ken Sr. and Kenny and me uh, in a spring training game. So I, I thought Kenny was, it, it was a joy every night. He was, we were kind of, Gary Kasich, who was our president and I, would, would for every game, we'd go behind home plate and sit there and get cheeseburgers before the game, before we went up to the owner's suite and had to entertain people. And Kenny would come in every night before the games and just shoot the breeze. And it, and it was, it was, it was like a big brother relationship with both of us. When my son who would come in from Indianapolis, I always told him, you know, don't go out in the field because, you know, it doesn't look good for a, a, a nine-year-old kid to go out in the field when there's all these kids in the stands. So immediately, Junior would grab Brad and run him around the field just to, you know, and it, but I love Junior. He was the best. Yeah. And then uh, Don Imus, brilliant guy, um, you know, always, you know, what you saw is what you got with Don. Uh, could be a curmudgeon, but an absolutely brilliant, brilliant talent. You know, a lot of a lot of actors, I haven't been around a lot of people in the entertainment business, but I hear this from others too. A lot of actors and comedians, they're great on the stage, but sometimes off the stage, I see this with trial lawyers too, can be very quiet and kind of removed. Is Letterman a funny guy when he's not on the stage too? Can be, but generally he's he's incredibly shy. Uh it's well known that Dave, once he went off the air, he didn't socialize, he didn't do things. In in our day, you know, we would have staff parties and he would come. He could be very funny. But Dave is generally, I'll tell you one story, the, probably the worst speaking assignment I ever got. They were dedicating the Letterman building in Muncie, Ball State. Um, and the president of the university was a friend. And she said, look, we're going to dedicate the building to Dave. You've got to do the keynote um, before Dave speaks and just talk about the future of media, whatever. You take 20 minutes and do that. 
So about two days before the speech, I realized they're expecting 35,000 people. And I went and I called the president. I said, look, I had to cut this in half. If I speak for 20 minutes, they're going to stone me. You know, <laughs> they're waiting to hear Dave. And I remember saying, there's 35,000 people here. And not anyone in this crowd, including my own wife, wants to hear me. But I promised the president I'd give a speech. So I gave a speech. But before the speech, we're backstage. And David said, I'm just not worthy. I, I don't know why I get these honors. I said, David, there's 35,000 people here to honor you. Trust me, you're worthy. But that was David. Uh, he just uh, insecure, and uh, but a brilliant, brilliant guy. You know, I, I remember an IMAS story years ago where he was with President Clinton, and yeah. IMAS was making some jokes about President Clinton's personal life, like up two feet from the president. Yeah. The look on Clinton's face was was like it was it was not a friendly look. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I don't know about that. I do know that IMAS really resurrected Clinton's campaign early in the campaign when the New York primary was early. And I just did a series of interviews with him and it really helped him. But uh, yeah, Don could be tough. No question about it. Are, are you still in touch with uh, Ken Griffey Jr. at all? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And his agent's a friend, but not much. Um, you know, not much. See him once in a while. Love him. Really. He was one, you really liked him as a player, though. You really liked him as a person. Yeah, I the best ever. And a great guy. Yeah. Love it. Love it. These are two questions. My show's a sports-based show, so we're going to definitely talk a little more about your your, your baseball years. But um, these are two questions I've asked about every guest since about late 2019. Um, who's a living sports figure? It can be a manager, an owner, an, an agent, or a player. Someone who's still with us, you would enjoy chatting with and interviewing in the sports world. And who's a deceased person uh, in sports history you would have loved to have spent some time with and or interviewed? You know, I haven't thought about that. I still I idolize Willie Mays, uh, so still talking to Willie Mays. Um, I don't I don't know. Maybe Ted Williams because he was such a you know uh, an I iconic character and such an you know unusual character. But I haven't really thought about that one a lot. I'm sure there are others that will come to mind. I'll get off this and I'll go. Wow, why didn't I say so and so and so and so? So right now you'd think Mays is your living figure, Williams is your deceased sports figure in history. Great answers, great answers. Yeah, uh, a few. Willie Mays is probably really high on my list of people still with us in the sports world. I'd love to chat with, and Ted Williams is a great name. No one had mentioned Ted Williams yet, so I love it, love it. And and you've had such a long career in the business world. Uh, who is a living person in the business world? It can be a CEO or um, somebody who who's in the business world you'd love to spend some time with, and who's a deceased person in the business world you would love to spend time with. Another great question. Um, God, there's so many people. I mean, in the media business, I've always really liked Bob Iger. Um, uh, I know Bob quite a, a bit. His wife is the dean of the Annenberg School, so he pops into mind. Um, uh, deceased, well, I'm trying to think. There's so many people. Iacocca? I'll just throw out a couple names. Uh, yeah, well, Iacocca would have been great. No question about it. Uh, I've gotten to know his son, his uh, son-in-law. So, you know, because he he's lives in he's in Antucket this summer. Um, there's so many people. Forgive me for just not no, having no, no. I I just I, I I find I get amazing answers with with those with a couple of those questions. Um all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask another one. Uh your right. trained attorney. Uh who is a living figure in the legal world you'd love to spend time with, and who's a deceased uh, legal figure in history you would love to spend time with? Oh wow. Um well, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I think. Mean, Floyd Abrams, uh, the great First Amendment lawyer, who'd be a great person to talk to. I think, uh, you know, I, I think probably I would love to, you know, talk to Louis Brandeis. 
Um, you know, and I think I would love to see what Louis Brandeis would say about the state of the Supreme Court in the world today. Great answers. Great answers. Love it. Love it. Uh, all right, Jeff, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to throw out a, a, a frequent narrative we hear from Seattle baseball fans. And I want to get Jeff Smolian. I want to get your kind of rebuttal or your responses. Give us give us your narrative, your kind of counter narrative to this. So the, the narrative we frequently hear in Seattle baseball cir- circles is Jeff Smolian was underfunded and he tried to secretly move the Mariners to Florida. And then a group came in um, that stopped him from moving the team. And then Jeff reluctantly sold the group the Mariners to a Japanese ownership group. What, what's what's your narrative on what happened? Well, uh, listen, part of that is accurate. We were underfunded. Amos was a skyrocket. Uh, everything Amos did turned to gold until like 1991. Um, it was very clear that we couldn't get a cable TV deal and we couldn't get any sponsorships. And, and, and we did not have the wherewithal to lose 15, 20 million dollars a year. Uh, we got remember we got a twelve million dollar collusion payment. Um, so what I and I made a comment at the time that I learned was that to own the Mariners in those days without cable TV and without corporate support and without any government subsidy that you got regularly, right or wrong, in other towns, that you really had to be. I said you really have to be a billionaire to own a team like this, um, or you have to be a big company like Nintendo that could afford the losses. But I said, for us, as, you know, me was the majority shareholder. Uh, when Emmis went through its downturn, we couldn't afford it. Uh, and we said that, you know, I always thought, we always said the day I got there, we're going to give it our best shot. We thought we could at least break even. We couldn't. Um, and when the radio business got bad, uh, it was tougher and tougher. But we never defaulted on anything. We always And, and, and the infamous thing that was fascinating is, the infamous bank memo that the Seattle Times wrote about was a meeting the bank had with Gary Kasich, who was the president. And the bank was worried, since they were our lender, that I was on some mission from God. And then no matter what happened, you know, I was going to keep losing money uh, and the bank would get stuck with the bag. And the bank at the time said, you know, we, we love you guys. We'll lend you money anywhere, but you're never going to make it in Seattle. And we want to know if Jeff's crazy. And Gary said, look, Jeff loves this. This is his mission in life to make this work here. But if he can, he'll put it up for sale. What I always thought I was vilified for, I never understood. We had a lease that we inherited from George Archeros, and it very clearly spelled out the terms. We said, if, and I think the reason that we were vilified is people thought nobody in their right mind is going to buy the Mariners. But we had a lease. We, we, we put it up for sale. And we said, we can't make it work here. We, we cannot keep losing this kind of money. So if the city, the city has the first right of refusal to buy it, they buy it, everybody's happy. But if they can't, we're either going to sell it or move it. And we had said that a year before. So it was no secret. Did I talk to Tampa? Yeah, I got in trouble once. And somebody said, isn't it true you can make more money in Tampa? And I said, yeah, but I could make more money in Duluth than we're making here. Um, you know, the economics were just, they were awful. Um, and that was nobody's fault. It was my fault. I bought the team. So I, but, but we, but we always had a lease and as long as they bought it, it was done. And they, they found Nintendo. There was controversy about Japanese ownership. They got around it, but I, but I think I was vilified because people said, oh, he's got a secret plan to move it. It was not secret. 
we said, if we can't find a buyer here, we're either going to sell it to somebody who will move it, if nobody will keep it here, or we're going to move it ourselves. And sure, Tampa was courted. Me. Heck, we had we had everybody courting us. Phoenix courted us. Mexico courted us. We said we have a lease, so if, if we will abide by the lease, and that was and that was it. Could I afford to keep losing that kind of money in Seattle? No. And I've said that. Yeah. So Jeff, I guess I guess part of we can call it the Smolian defense if we want, to, but a part of your I guess explanation is you were contractually following the terms of the lease. Right. It yeah. was. It was. It was no. You know. And that's why that we we always I, we always marvel why is this such a controversy? Now I think people had different agendas, uh, which I talked about in the book a little bit. But I think the reality, listen, if I had known the radio business was going to go to hell, and I had known that that I could not get any kind of cable television contract in Seattle, or that we would have no corporate advertising support, would I have ever bought the Mariners? No. Although I, I love that I did it. I have no regrets in my life. I love the people that work for us there. Uh, and I love the friends I made there. And I love the things we did. You know, one of the things I'm proudest of, Paul, is we invented things that at the time nobody ever done before, whether it was, you know, the uh, mascot who did, you know, crazy things or singles nights or situational music uh, or they did singles nights, uh, you know, they had dances. They had, we built the first kids' corner, which is upstairs in the right field deck, just games for kids. So I was incredibly proud. Uh, you know, we did the we did the Animal House bit when we were behind. Uh, we wanted to do a special effects, and we got the Lucas, uh, the, you know, the Lucas people, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, and they came to us and said, "I'll never forget this," because we wanted to do things like you know take advantage of how horrible our building was. And at least, you know, project, um, you know, virtual reality things on the on the dome. So like if we were down seven runs in the fourth inning, we'd have lightning and thunder like the game was going to be rained out. And, you know, just we had all sorts of things. But we couldn't do it because they said your sound system's so bad that you can't even begin to tackle the, the special effects. Yep. Jeff, you know, I, I read some excerpts of your book and I, and I look forward to reading it. Um, I was so excited to get you on, as I told you before the show started, I didn't have a chance to, to read your book between now and then, which was just a few days back. But um, yeah. is it true that the late prominent Seattle businessman, Herman Sarkowski, who I met a couple of times, did he really tell you to move the team? Yeah, I adored Herman. Um, Herman, we what happened was when the Seattle Times ran this article about Smolian, then the city said, or the, you know, they said, we want to open the books. And I said, we'd be glad to open the books. We'd be delighted. And, and I'll never forget. So Herman got very involved. He, he, he was the point man. I think George Duff appointed. And Herman had owned a piece of the Seahawks. And Herman, so Herman's plan was how far are we behind the average revenue in the in the in the American League? Because our whole goal is if we get to average, we think we're good enough that we'll compete. And we were 15 million, I think we were 10 million dollars we bought the team. We we're like 15 two years later. So Herman said, look, I'm going to see if I can raise the $15 million from the business community, sponsorships, whatever. So that was Herman's charge. We opened up the books to Herman. He knew all of our revenues, all of our expenses. And I'll never forget, he came to the ballpark one night. There was a relief pitcher named Mark Davis who was pitching for the Royals. And Mark Davis was like the best relief pitcher in the National League. Um and he had signed like a, I don't know, $8 million contract a year with the Royals to leave. And it was one of the highest paid league pitchers. And this was in his second year. 
and something had gone wrong in his first year. And by the second year, he was washed out. And we were playing a game. Never forget. We, we, and Herman was at the ballpark with me, and and we were ahead like nine to one in the sixth inning or seventh inning. And here comes Mark Davis. Well, Mark Davis by this time is a mop up guy. You don't put him into a game where you have any chance to win. And I said, Herman, here's a good example of the economics of baseball. I said, they signed him to a three-year contract, $24 million, $8 million a year. And he's now in the middle of his second year. And they're only putting him in for mop-up. His career is pretty much over. And he said, how much of the $24 million do they have to pay him? And I said, every penny. He said, so you mean like in football, you know, you sign a guy and, 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 and you know, he's cut immediately. I said, they're going to pay him all $24 million. Whether he's, if they release him, they still pay it. He said, oh my God, your economics are crazy. So we got to understand the economics. And the day before we we, we released, it's a funny story, but Gary Case and I went to see Herman in his office. And I said, Herman, we got to trigger the, we got to trigger the escape clause, which starts the 120 days tomorrow. And I said, Herman, if I were you, if you were me, what would you do? my favorite management question of all time. And he said, Jeff, I got to tell you, I'd move this thing in a heartbeat. Nobody cares here. He wow. said, I, I, nobody cares. And what was funny, and I loved Herman, um, but we put the team for sale and Herman went away. I'll never forget this. Herman went away to the Caribbean for like a three-week vacation during Christmas vacation. Because I think the escape clause started like the 15th of December, whenever it was. Well, by the time Herman got back, they were furiously trying to convince a buyer to raise, you know, to buy the team. And they had Herman announce that the mysterious Sarkowski money, the $15 million, had been raised. So Herman comes back and says, we've raised the money. Any buyer will get the $15 million. Well, we knew it was all nonsense because Herman had been gone and, you know, but but and we kind of laughed. We loved Herman and like look, Herman was being a, a good steward of the community, and so he was saying that to induce a potential buyer. Um, and for years afterwards, Bobby Brown was president of the American League. We always laughed about the Sarkowski money. Every time I talked to him, he said, "I I went to Seattle looking for the Sarkowski money. I still haven't found it." Um, and there were great stories about Nintendo that was told, "You buy the team, there'll be plenty of civic money. You'll never lose a penny." And you'll be heroes. Well, the good news was they were heroes for buying the team. And the bad news is they were losing a fortune like we did. And they were so, but I mean, you listen, you do what you have to do. And they had to convince Herman to say there was money. I adored Herman. And I people said, were you angry that he said he had found the money? I said, I didn't care. Yeah. What a story. I love these behind the scenes stories, uh, Jeff. All right. I'm going to mention a name to you. And I had this former, uh, now late U.S. Senator Slade Gore on my show back in 2017. And Slade yeah. played a very significant role in yeah. leading the charge to prevent you from moving or selling the team. He wanted to keep it local. Yeah. Uh, what are your initial thoughts when you hear the name Slade Gordon? Anger? Disappointment? Do you think he was an SOB? What, what's your what's your reaction to when you hear the name Slade Gordon? Hey, a couple of Slade Gordon stories. Uh, number one, Slade Gordon built his career on this, so I knew that. Um, there, I don't know if this story is apocryphal, but I've heard it that when the pilots left, you know, Slade Gordon, I think, was county attorney. He got supposedly got a hold of tapes of the American League meetings where they said disparaging things, and he said, "You either give me a franchise 
uh, in the next expansion or I'll release these tapes. I know that by the time I get to baseball, no meeting was ever taped again. Supposedly that was a Slade Gordon. Again, I wasn't there. I don't know. Um, I had always gotten along well with him. When we put the team up for sale, I knew it was his mission to find a buyer. Fully respected that. What I didn't respect is I met with him when we were putting the team up for sale. And he said, look, you have saved baseball in Seattle. You have made it fun. Uh, the surveys show that people love going to the game and you've done a great job. Nobody can ever say that you didn't do great things for baseball. And I will be the first to defend you. And honest to God, three days later, I see in the papers, we got to find a buyer to get rid of Smolian. And every day, the comments from Slade Gordon were more disparaging. Uh, and I and I called his office and I said, what, what is, why would he do that? If he, if he believed that we helped baseball, there's no reason to uh, pour dirt on my grave. He's trying to find somebody. And they came back, one of his, his AAs, I didn't talk to Gordon, uh, and he came back and he said, look, you have to be positioned as bad as possible so we can make sure that we Seattle is rescued from you. So Slade says, don't take it personally. Uh, and I thought that was about as duplicit as a statement as I've ever seen. So I was not a friend, fan of Slade Gordon's. I thought that was, you know, if he wanted to say to me, Jeff, look, I have to bury you to find a buyer, so be it. Um, and then the other thing that I knew was when he found Nintendo baseball, I had been on the committee that the baseball had fervently kept foreign ownership out. Um, and I, when I, when I heard that it was Nintendo, I went, Oh my God, now I'm going to get vilified no matter what I do. Baseball doesn't want foreign ownership. Seattle wants to get rid of me. I'm in the middle. So I just said, look, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and stay out of this. Um, they, they did a beautiful job of truly local ownership. I'll tell you one more story since it's 30 years later. One of my favorite moments. Great stories. Uh, one of my favorite moments was when Nintendo bought it. Nintendo was putting up all the money, but I think Paul Larson, uh, what's his name? Look, uh, Craig Larson, uh, I think put up 15 million or 10 million. And I think Craig McCaw put up 10, but the rest of the $110 million is all from Nintendo. But they put together a local group with John Ellis and Frank Schrantz and all those people. And they were the they were the baseball club of Seattle. And the marketing campaign was truly local ownership. Well, take a rocket scientist to figure that 80 cents on the dollar was coming from a man who had never left Kyoto, never been in the United States. Um, so they had a meeting to introduce the, the ownership group. Um, and Gary was in the room. I think it was it was Boglin Gates, whoever was representing. And I'm on the phone in Indianapolis. And they said, look, this is the group that's going to be uh, the leadership group of the team. And they'll have responsibility for the team. And I said, OK. And I said, how much are you all investing? There are like seven or eight of them. And very sheepishly, Frank Schrantz, who I loved, nice guy said, uh, Jeff, we're putting um, uh, $1,000 in a piece. And I, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, let me see. I've got seven leading citizens from Seattle. They're, they're, they're supposedly running a $110 million business and they're putting $1,000 in a piece. And I said, well, gee, Frank, maybe if you guys could put in like $2,000 a piece, you'd have a little bit more credibility in Major League Baseball. And, and Gary said, if Frank could have crawled under the table, he would have. But the whole idea was do a front. And I understood it. 
but the, but and baseball knew that. So they just said, "Look, you'll have preliminary decision making with the United States citizens." Uh, and I think I think uh, uh, that's how Howard Lincoln was one of their local guys, and Eric Howe was his son-in-law. And I think his son-in-law may have had some form of citizenship. So they mask it, but um, but you know, I mean, they did what they had to do. But I give it, yeah. So Slade's approach was to the ends justify the means too much for Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And listen, his, he had built his career on baseball. Uh, and I mean, he not only lied to me, I know he lied to uh, Hiroshi Yamachi because I heard stories that Yamachi was just losing fistfuls of dollar for the first four or five years and saying, this is outrageous. But, you know, that was Slade Gordon. Wow. I, you know, I, I, Jeff, I, for some reason, I thought your reaction about Slay would be a little more temperate. But wow, you definitely have some strong feelings about the late uh, senator. Well, let's put it this way. Yeah. Maria Cantwell is an old friend. Um, and Maria, who used to, by the way, from Indianapolis originally and was a state senator, is a big baseball fan. Right. So when Maria ran against him, yeah, there's no question. I maxed out in every, when her race against Slade, I maxed out a lot and did a fundraiser for her. And I'm gotcha. thrilled she's in the Senate. And, uh, but yeah, I was not a Slade Gordon fan. Okay. Um, after you sold the Mariners, Jeff, did you ever go back to the Kingdom? And have you ever been to uh, T-Mobile Park? I have been to T-Mobile Park once. I was never back in the Kingdom after that. Uh, the joke was, Jeff, when you come back, you got to get a, you know, you got to get a visa to get into Seattle. That's not true. I've been back a few times, and I love Seattle. And I think the fun thing is, people. I run into pe- people from Seattle all the time, and they go. Yeah, we, we loved you. We loved you. And I and I had to laugh. I'll tell you one more story, Paul, and I laughed. The only time I ever got booed at the ballpark was one of my last visits there. I think the sale had already been announced and whatever. And I'll never forget, I was standing in the owner's box, and a guy walks along the concourse. And he yet sees me, and he yells up, Smolian, you get out of our town. Get the blank out of our town. Get out of our town. And I looked down, and honest to God, it's a guy in a complete Boston Red Sox uniform. And I said, this pretty much summarizes the experience. So, but I love the town. I love the people. Love the fans. Um, made a lot of friends there. You would agree, as the years have gone on, it's become a good Major League Baseball city. Yeah, it is. It, it, Seattle is always a town that loves a winner. Uh, we always knew if for some miracle we could make the math work and win. Um you know, the, the beauty of Seattle is there's so much disposable income and there's so much tourism. And now you've got so many corporate headquarters. There is no question. And I just lived this. I've spent a lot of time on the Pac-12. There is no question that there's an, a, a lessening affinity for sports on the West Coast than in the East Coast. I will tell you that I lived through the whole Pac-10 thing, Pac-12 thing. I see it with USC. I see it up and down the coast. Sports fans on the West Coast have less passion than they do anywhere else. Now, when it's when it's the Seahawks and you got, you know, you got eight home games a year, you can mask that. But if you do, if you see studies of affinity for sports, uh, whether it's college football, professional sports, uh, it's not as fanatical as it is in the South, especially where they don't really have much else to do or something uh, in the Midwest. Uh, it, it lessens as you go west, and that you know, doesn't mean Seattle sports fans are great. Doesn't mean they're not great. What was it like working with Faye Vincent? When he was commissioner. Not a Faye Vincent fan either. <laughs> Faye was. Uh, I was not a big Faye fan. I don't think I mentioned in the book. Um, 
Faye was a guy who inherited the job for Barchamati. Uh, and most, and by the time, and his tenure ended after I left. Uh, but but the prevailing feeling among almost everybody was Faye was a guy who wanted to make sure he looked good in the New York Times. Uh, and you knew that if you told Faye something, his spin on it would be linked to the New York Times. And it really caused a tremendous amount of negatives uh, in, in baseball. And that's why he was... Uh, he was like, um, Jeff, when you go at Liam's, there were 20, 26 franchises. Who yeah. would you say was your favorite owner of the other 25 franchises? Who stood out to you as? Well, there's no question. And the person who's been friendly almost all my life since then is Jerry Reinster. Uh, it was funny when Paul Volcker, who was the former president of the Federal Reserve, um, was doing a study after he left the head of the Federal Reserve to do a study for baseball. And I was one of the th first three or four owners he interviewed. And he said, who do you who do you look up to? Uh, and I said, well, it seems to me like Reinsdorf just, it just understands the economics and understands the game better than anybody. He said, you know, it's funny. That's the answer I always get. So I thought Jerry is a very bright guy. He's been like a big brother to me. Uh, there's, a, there's a few, there's one Reinsdorf story in there, in the book, uh, where we talked about uh, sports radio and the rise of sports radio changed the relationship between teams and owners and managers and fans because if if you were in the game and before sports radio uh, somebody wrote a negative column about you in the in the seattle times or the new york times or the washington post you read it in the morning you put it down you went to your job but with sports radio you could get ripped 24 7 um so Jerry said, look, I'm not a religious man, but I came to Seattle and I'm driving around town and I'm hearing that the guy who invented the format that ruined all of our lives and that made everybody fair game to be criticized 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The same guy who did that to all of us is now a major league owner. And I'm listening on the radio and he's getting ripped by his own invention by one of the people on the air. He said, this proves to me this is that there is a God. Um, and I always always love that story. So, um, but I, Jerry and I are dear friends. We have been to this very day. Uh, Jeff, you got time for a few more questions? I got time. I'm having fun. This is this beats my day job, Paul. Oh, likewise. No, I'm enjoying this too. It's this, um, this is this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I don't you've been so generous your time, I don't want to take it too much more of your time, but if you're up for a few more questions, I love it. Uh, should Pete Rose be reinstated? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Um, and I and listen, and Bud is a, a dear friend. I love Bud. I didn't mention Bud because I'm closer to Jerry. I know that Bud believes, I think Bud believes that the whole Pete Rose thing really hastened Barjamati's demise. A lot has been written about that. Um, I would I would probably say Pete Rose was not a good guy, make no mistake about it. Uh, and there may be evidence that he's still bet on baseball and maybe on on his team, maybe against his team. I don't, I don't know all that. Um, but I think probably I, I'm sort of one of these people that time heals all wounds. Probably don't believe that if you're here, we talk about Slade Gordon, but I, I do believe it. Or Faye Vincent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just was not a big Faye fan. I think by the time Faye left baseball, probably of the, of the 30 owners, 27 up said, this guy's got to go. Um, but, but, um, um, you know, I just think for the good of the game, I think it'd be nice to see him reinstated. 
Jeff, put on an alternative history hat. You mentioned the late Bart Giamatti. What would Giamatti you think could have accomplished if, if he had another 5, 10, 15 years as baseball commissioner? Well, it's hard to know. Bart Bart was a, a, a great consensus builder. He's a brilliant man. Um, and I think the problem is somebody once called it commissioner-itis. Um, not about Faye, but about the job as commissioner. They, you want to look good in the paper. You want to look good you know, on, now on Sports Center, and and to really do a great job, you really have to have the ability to work with all the disparate people who own teams, and then and then a labor union, which is you know always challenging. Um, and I think Bart probably would have advanced the game a bit. I was a big fan of Bud's commissionership. I thought Bud really did a remarkable job of of bringing all the elements of the game together, probably better than anybody understood. Yeah. That's Bug Selig for the listeners. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. What, uh, how did you feel? You know, for years we've heard about the uh, fights between baseball owners and the Players Association. I actually college in a paper on that as a, as a union struggle topic. But but how did you feel when Marvin Miller got in the Baseball Hall of Fame, the late uh, Players Act? I thought, I thought he all should have been years before. Uh, and listen, I had, it's funny, my dad, um, my dad went to school with Don Fair's dad. So they were, they were like fraternity brothers a thousand years ago to university. So when I got to baseball, I said, look, I don't know Don, but we have a common you know relationship. And, and, and I, and I developed a nice relationship with Don and Gene Orza. But I think I always viewed that their view was that, you know, that management was inherently evil. And I've always said, life's a pendulum shift. If you really look at, the treatment of players during a hundred years. I think the treatment was a great egregious and unfair. And there was a reason for Marvin Miller and a reason for the union. Um, so I would have been supportive as time came on. By the time I got in baseball, the pendulum had shifted and the players had far more power than the owners. So I'm a big believer at all of life being pendulum shifts. So I would sit and talk to Gene and, 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 uh, and, and, and Donald and say, guys, this doesn't comport with reality. Uh, really, but but I think, you know, I, I've always thought the relationship could have been better. Uh, and I think it stemmed from the way they treated Marvin Miller in the beginning, which is awful. Um, and I think they were, you know, and I, and I think Marvin Miller also looked at not contemporary labor management, which had really advanced a lot since the steel battles of the 20s. And I think too much of the union was based on, you know, the battles of the, you know, of the labor units of 1920, when there was really different contemporary management. I, I still laughed at uh, uh, Bob Boone. Uh, Bob Boone ended up in our career, and he had a man, he had a master's in, in MBA from Stanford. And we were talking about it, and I said, you know, labor management's different than than Gene and Don think it is today. And he said, yeah, but they're locked into 1920, and you're never going to change them. It was a fun discussion. Miller was definitely an old school trade unionist, no doubt about it. A absolutely, but but you know, and I think the way he was treated. I, I years later, I said, "For God's sake, why in the hell isn't he in the Hall of Fame?" Well, people were angry and everything, but but of course he did. I mean, he changed the game. No doubt about it. No doubt about yeah. it. Uh, what's something, Jeff, that you would have liked to have accomplished as a major league baseball owner if he had more than three years on a team? Well, I'll turn a team around. My my one unfilled dream, and I, I'm one of those people who's had more success than I ever deserve. I've gotten more honors than I ever deserve. Uh, but yeah, I would have loved to have a winning team in Seattle. Uh, that would have been my dream. 
to win a pennant in Seattle was the ultimate dream. We realized that, you know, early on that we were, you know, when we bought the team, I think it had a $7 million payroll. We said, look, our goal is to get a $22 million payroll in three years. And instead of being 14th in the league, we'll be seventh in the league. And we had enough, you know, confidence that if we were in the middle of the payroll, that we would be very competitive. Well, at the end of three years, we had a $24 million payroll. And now we we're 14th. We we're 14th by a larger percentage than we were the day we started. So, you know, and, and that doesn't mean low payrolls can't win, but it, 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 you, everything's got to click. So, yeah, that my, my dream was win a, and it would have been to win a championship in Seattle. Now, I know we're 35 years later and that still hadn't happened. So it's been on somebody else's nickel since then, but that would have been my ultimate dream. Gotcha. Gotcha. We'll see if they can do it this year that the mirrors are hot. Yeah, right? yeah. um, I didn't know this about you, but you, you were at a, tell us about that experience that president Clinton appointed you as I believe an ambassador position. Uh, tell us about that experience, but have you ever had the political bug? You know, it's funny. I get asked a lot because uh, I guess I get asked a lot because the only, I guess, blight on my career is three years in Seattle. And I guess people overlook that. So I've been asked, I've been asked to run in Indiana uh, a number of times. I've turned it down. I've always said, look, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I'm doing the one thing that I want to. If you read the book, you'll understand. You'll see that. You go, why did he do this? Why did he do that? I love my company. I love my people. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, and, I, and I always said, by the way, now I'm a Democrat in Indiana. Uh, and that, it, that now is not politically viable. When people came to me before, it was. And I didn't do it. But yeah, it's been very gratifying to have people ask you. But I've been very active uh, in, in civic issues, not necessarily politics, but civic issues for a long, long time. And I'm proud of that. What, what did you do in, in the uh, point you got from President Clinton? It wasn't involving Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, it was it was actually when he got elected, I had I had known the president, I actually met him in Seattle. Uh, and, and we sort of kidded about he went through the the uh, what's her name? Um whatever the scandal was uh, in like February of, of, of 92 uh, when I was having all my problems in Seattle. So we had a fundraiser in Indianapolis where we were laughing. We're both pariahs. Anyway, when he got elected, they asked if I'd want to do something. I said, look, I'm, I want to stay at my company, but if there's something I can do part-time, yeah. So they said, look, you can be a U.S. ambassador to the International Telecommunications Union Conference. Um, you have to have you don't have to go through the Senate confirmation because it's a it's only a, a two year appointment, time certain. You have to go through the background checks, which you know you do. Uh, I always laugh. I got a top secret clearance and all the cables I read. I don't know. I could have seen them in the New York Times. But, <laughs> but I was in charge of a delegation of sixty people. Uh, we went to Kyoto. We did it for seven weeks. I attended bilateral meetings before and after, and it was and I loved it. Um, it was all about technical standards and satellite things and. And the, the, what happened with the peace agreement was um, about two weeks, three weeks into the conference, it was after Oslo. You have to be a student of history. Remember that, that when President Clinton did the Oslo Accords in, in the beginning of 94, it looked like peace was going to be at hand and that you were going to have a separate Palestinian state. And so this looked like we were on the inalterable path to peace. And 
So they said the Palestinians really want telecommunications infrastructure. The United States could pay for it. And in exchange for that, they would recognize Israel throughout the UN system, all the Arab states. So I got thrown into it. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, there's no secret that I'm Jewish. There's no secret that the certainly the Arab states knew it. Certainly Israel knew it. Um, but it really taught me to be even handed and understand. And we reached an agreement I was incredibly proud of. Um, and, yeah, I learned a lot. You had a pretty good ambassador run there. Jeff, I, this may be, I may have two more questions. Um, two two former vice presidents are from Indiana, Vice President Quayle, Vice President Pence. Do you know both of those gentlemen? Well, I know I know Quayle and Pence. I know very well. Pence used to work for me. So I know Mike very well. As a matter of fact, Mike had a statewide talk show before he ran for Congress. Uh, when Mike was in Congress, we had a very close relationship because at one point we got nationalized in Hungary. Uh, by Viktor Orban, uh, and Mike led the charge. We had a resolution of, I think, 385 votes in Congress, and Mike really was the point man. Uh, when I worked on industry issues, Mike was the point man. We were very good friends, even though totally, he used to call me his favorite Democrat. Um, I sort of clashed with Mike when we had the Religious Freedom Act when he was governor. Uh, it was a bill that we thought really was very discriminatory toward gay people, uh, it cost the state, I think, a billion dollars in lost conventions, and the NCAA threatened to move out, and Salesforce. Yeah. And I was one of seven CEOs who were sort of on the phone negotiating. And I think Mike wasn't thrilled with me that I did, but I think it was the right thing, so I did it. Mike's politics and, and mine are totally different. Always liked him. We just view the world totally different. What are your interactions been with Vice President Quayle? Not many. Uh, we had mutual friends. Uh, I know the family. Better than uh, I know Dan. Uh, his, first, his family used to own the Indianapolis Star, and I'm very close to uh, his cousin, Murda, who, you know, when they owned the Star. So, and I used to actually work for the Indianapolis Star when I was in college. So I know the family a bit there. Wow. And I love to hear I, a few of those stories. Well, what a, what a great, I mean, it's fascinating. I know I talk more about your baseball experience because this is a Seattle based sports show. Couldn't help it. But what is in the future for Jeff Smollett? Well, we've we've vacated the radio business largely. I'm very proud of my group. Um, you look at the economics of the radio business, almost everybody's either been bankrupt, some been bankrupt twice. Uh, if they haven't been bankrupt, they're on the verge. We were fortunate. We get out, we have money in the bank, we paid off $2 billion of debt, um, and we're reinventing ourselves now. And uh, we have a dynamic pricing business. We have an investment in a, in a tech company that has as we think crack the code for advertising and video games. We have a sound masking business. So we're doing other things and we're having fun. And I'm, I'm one of those stupid people who could never retire. I've always had fun. Love what I do. Um, so I'm happy. Jeff, just love this hour. Thank you so much for doing this on Sports Untold podcast. Loved it. Paul, my pleasure. Thanks. You take care. Thank you so much.